We've been exploring some of the heart practices in the Buddhist tradition of forgiveness, loving-kindness, and then last week, really kind of the ground of the heart practices, which I described as radical acceptance. And what we find is that there's no way to really um, separate out heart practices from the training of the mind, that in order to awaken this heart, we really have to be grounded in presence. We have to have that mindfulness of recognizing what's going on moment by moment. That all the qualities we most cherish, wisdom, love, creativity, are all possible only when we're able to be here present in the moment. And so then the question comes, well, what takes us away? What stops us from being here? And what we find in a flash, as soon as we even have the intention to sit and meditate and, and be here, is that we um, drift a lot, right? We go off in thoughts. Uh, some of you might know the great 20th century Thai master Buddha Dasa was really asked to describe our world, and he said, lost in thought. That's us. <laughs> When Mahatma Gandhi was asked what he thought of Western civilization, he said, it would be a good idea. (laughs) I thought that was telling. (laughs) So lost in thought, we get carried away. We're lost in our plans and in our memories, in our ongoing commentary on what's going on, our fantasies. It's kind of amazing how much we're gone. Uh, A good friend of mine, some of you remember, because he taught here, Wes Nisker, wrote this in his book. He says, The next time you walk down a crowded city street, imagine that you are suddenly given the power to see into the workings of people's minds and nervous systems. You would find that most people are absorbed in thinking about what they will do when they arrive at their next destination or what has occurred at the last one, or else having a good fantasy or mulling over a current or future life issue of finance, romance, or family life. You would be hearing a great babble of thinking, almost none of it having anything to do with the act of walking down the street. The thoughts may begin to sound to you like non-sequiturs coming from a parade of schizophrenics. In the West, the thinking mind is really trusted as the ultimate refuge, kind of the place to go for any way of navigating our world and understanding our world. And when something seems like it's going wrong, our mind speeds up. We start thinking faster and harder because we really are relying on this apparatus to work it out. In contrast, in the wisdom traditions, and when I say that, I mean really the core spiritual spiritual core of all the major faiths. Um, it's understood that thinking is a valuable, natural part of our humanity, but it is not the key, it's not the way to deepen understanding or to really discover freedom. We cannot think our way to freedom. Harry Emerson Fuzdick writes, I would rather live in a world where my life is surrounded by mystery than live in a world so small that my mind could comprehend it. We want our mind to work it out, but what kind of world would that be, you know? If our minds, our rational minds, really were able to make sense of it, it's so much bigger. It's so unanswerable, it's so unfathomable, this world. We can only pretend that we really know what's going on. Really. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it this way. He said, Within us is the soul of the whole. When it breaks through our intellect, it is genius. When it breathes through our will, it is virtue. When it flows through our affections, it is love. So our thoughts aren't the source of our love or our creativity. 
At most, they're a kind of representative snapshot of the whole. So what are they actually? I mean, what are these thoughts? Why don't you just for a moment, let's close our eyes together and just examine more firsthand. And just take a few full breaths. And we can't practice too often this pausing and arriving again. Imagining a movie screen in the mind. And just simply wait for thoughts to arise. And because you're not doing anything but waiting, you might notice quickly or not. And in whatever way they arise, what do you notice? What exactly are they? When a thought happens, what is it? Where do they come from? Where do they go to? Okay, come on back. Take a breath, come on back, open your eyes. So what do you notice? What are thoughts? Anybody? Okay, so thoughts are fears, and when a fear comes up, how does it present itself? Okay, so there's a plan, and how do you know a plan is going on in your mind? What, what lets you know that? Is there a voice? Do you see images? So there's a story, and is the story something that you actually hear in your mind? Or do you actually see it as if you were watching a see a visual? Okay, so that's so one way that thoughts present are through visual stories, kind of a stream of scenes and so on. Thank you. Anyone else had a thoughts come? Yeah. Images and sounds. So they're a combo. You've got a multimedia kind of thought going on. <laughs> Anything else? I'm sorry? Conversations. So again, it's auditory, like you're hearing the conversation. We could keep exploring this, and it would have, you could have a million different kinds of content to thoughts, but what are thoughts? They're sounds in our mind. They might sound real auditorily strong or very, very subtle. Sound bites, images, a series of images that come together to make a story. But they're basically images and sound bites, right? Where do they come from? What happened when I asked that question? Yeah. <laughs> There's not going to be a better answer. <laughs> they come out of nowhere. Yeah. Where do they go to? <laughs> Back to nowhere. Okay, so there's a sense of uh, feelings that are in potential to kind of take, be expressed, but they haven't been expressed, and that the they generate the thoughts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Memories. Now, memories are thoughts. So memory, uh, that's a particular kind of thought, but how does the memory present itself for you? Images, same way that a possible future projection might, yeah. People tend to, some people are much more visual, some are more auditory, but it's all the same thing. These images and sound bites that either come out of nowhere or maybe unexpressed experience, and when they go, when we actually notice thoughts, 
Have you noticed how when you become really aware of a thought, it kind of dissolves? It's very hard to be aware of a thought and keep on having the thought, right? Okay. When you actually examine thoughts, uh, they're no closer to the real thing than a photograph of a tree would be the same as that living organism that's blowing in the breeze and its leaves are coming from buds and its leaves color and fall off. They're not the living reality. They're a representation. That's all a thought can be. And yet we end up believing them. We pay attention to our thoughts and invest in them this sense that this is real life. We believe them. So at the heart of most spiritual traditions is this honoring of being states, honoring of the living reality of what's sacred and timeless, what's universal. And each spiritual path actually has a pathway of awakening from the habitual cocoon of thoughts that we live in, from the mental movies, a way of waking up from them back into the living reality back into the sensations and aliveness and mystery and vitality of the present moment. So what I'd like to explore tonight, because really it's at the very center of our practice of waking up, is what the Buddha described as our waking dream, how we live in this cocoon of representations, of images and sound bites, and how we can more and more begin to notice that and reconnect with sacred presence. How can we be here more moments of our life? Hmm. The next reading I didn't bring with me. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a reading uh, by Huang Po, one of the great Zen masters, who basically was conveying that our very essence is radiance and awareness and love, and that in the moment that we can fully release our identification with concepts, with ideas, we begin to have access to the beauty, to the illumination of spirit that's really who we are. And the Buddha basically said that our habit of identifying with thoughts of just being lost in them, keeps us confined, keeps us living in a small and self-centered world. And it's amazing how much power our thoughts have. They basically say, do this and say that, and they plan. we get planning and obsessing and judging. The Buddha described it that people with opinions just go around bothering each other. <laughs> I love that. So he basically said, take this conceptual world in two hands, and drop it. That was the teaching. Describe that as we hold on to our thoughts, we, in the moment that we're hanging on to our ideas about things, we cannot see what is happening right now. And we can't see each other. When we're thinking, we're disconnected. Swami Ananda, do you guys know him? (laughs) Do you know what Ananda is? It's bliss. So this is Swami beyond bliss. (laughs) That should give you an idea of what might come next. He says, it's true. As we go through life thinking heavy thoughts, thought particles tend to get caught between the ears, causing a condition called truth decay. (laughs) I think it's good, you know? (laughs) And he said meditation is like dental floss. It's mental floss, basically. (laughs) At the centerpiece of many, many systems of meditation training is the simple practice of getting, becoming aware that we're thinking and then arriving back in the present moment. When we think we're doing it wrong, it's because we think we're not doing that. You know, we're just lost in our thoughts. But that's the training. And there's, the reason it's the training is because every single one of us has the same conditioning to go drifting off into the future and the past. So it is 
the most powerful and central theme of all practice. Notice when thoughts are going on and come back. So let's try again. This is the beauty of the gong. It's just an invitation to come back again. Letting go of ideas, pausing, relaxing, just arriving in this breath. Arriving in the vividness of the present moment. You can ask yourself, am I thinking? Not with judgment, but just to notice, to shine a a light on what's going on. And if you find out there are thoughts, to gently let go, pause, arrive again in just what's happening in this moment. Okay, now come on back, open your eyes. What makes it so hard to release thoughts, to meditate in a non-conceptual way? Anyone, what do you notice? How come it's hard? Yeah. So it's a real habit. It was a proper, a tool that we've always felt we needed, and so it just doesn't occur to us that we can take them off and be free, that we don't have to be identified. Thank you. Yeah. Could I'll say it again. When I stop thinking, I find out that I hurt. I'm in pain. This is important. So our thinking actually keeps us out of our body. In the moments we're thinking, we're not having to feel the natural discomforts that come with this human existence. So in a way, thoughts are a buffer. Yeah, thank you. So that our thoughts are kind of this immediate reaction that gives us a sense that we can control what's going on. It's kind of scary when we're not thinking, we're no longer being able to manipulate or control things. It's just life uncontrollably doing itself. Yeah. Yeah, anyone else? These are all right, yeah. I was thinking of peer pressure, like imagined peer pressure. Say a little more. Um, just, uh, it's, it is, it's conditioned. Julie said something about peer pressure and imagine peer pressure. And it's interesting because I've sometimes, um, before I've walked into the door of visiting with a friend or started some social situation, I've had the intention to not go off and thinking, to just really be present. And Sometimes if I even do that for a few moments, there's a sense of real kind of vulnerability and like everything and anything can happen and I don't have my personality available and 
And there's a sense of it's not in control again. So there's almost like this social pressure to inhabit our personalities and be thinking and, co- and cognitive and exchanging on that level versus that real mysterious, open-ended, just being in this body and heart and just being awake in the moment. Yeah. The great Western philosopher... I think, therefore, I am. So Descartes basically put it right out there. He he was almost the pol- polar, you know, archetype to the Buddha. Basically, that our thinking lets us know we exist. Yeah. still be, but given that we're thinking, we are. So we don't have to put Descartes in that opposite territory. We don't have to put Descartes in the opposite territory. <laughs> Second, I, I just wanted to ask if anyone had any thoughts that weren't imagistic or auditory. Anyone have any thoughts that were not imagistic or auditory? So uh, the point that's being brought up here is that it's a very subtle and fine line that goes between thinking and non-thinking. And even when we feel we're being very experiential and we're just experiencing the kinesthetics of the moment, the sounds, there's often a subtle conceptual veil that has an idea about what's going on. And it's very hard to discriminate sometimes. So this is all really useful because it's not a simple thing that sometimes it's very clear. We've been off in a very distinctive thought and we can come back and feel our bodies and go, I'm here again. But other times it's very, very subtle. And really what you'll find, especially if you're at retreat and the mind starts getting quieter, is that you start being able to penetrate those subtleties with more clarity. But if we're busy, it's very hard to distinguish and notice whether or not there's a, a conceptual overlay to um, very raw, immediate experience. So, so just to kind of sum up a bit, that we're very invested in our thoughts for a whole bunch of reasons. They can buffer us from the uncontrollable or unpleasant or mysterious or unfamiliar experience of the moment. They help us to feel like we're here. You know, if we have a fear of being annihilated, well, when we begin to practice meditation, there might be some moments where there's no thoughts and it becomes really disorienting. Bottom line is that... Yeah, please. How early in evolution... Um, could you all hear that? This is really a question about the evolution of the human mind. And um, I'd refer you a bit to Ken Welber's book, books on um, 
on development and how the development of the psyche correlated with the development of different spiritual practices. Interestingly, we're talking about how to wake up from thoughts, and this is probably the most cognitive discussion we've ever had here. <laughs> and, and it's really, and it's interesting. I mean, I like it. Um, but I'm a little bit, my only concern is that I want to make sure to explore the actual practices and not get off on my ideas about things too much. So let's hold that, and if I have, you and I can check in if I have some thoughts to share on that one. I think what's really important is that um, thinking is necessary. It's part of our survival. It's part of thriving. It's part of being creative. It's a vehicle. And it's also something that we get addicted to and we overuse because we're afraid, because we're trying to control things, because we're trying to reaffirm that we're here. And so it's from that perspective that I just to consider it as an attachment or an addiction that we can still use it as our servant but not be entrapped by being lost in thought. This is uh, called Thinkers Anonymous. (laughs) It started out innocently enough. (laughs) I began to think at parties now and then to loosen up. (laughs) Inevitably, though, one thought led to another, And soon I was more than just a social thinker. (laughs) I began to think alone to relax. (laughs) I told myself, well, but I knew it wasn't true. Thinking became more and more important to me, and finally I was thinking all the time. (laughs) Then the guy describes how he finally hits bottom, and he says at one point he's, he's completely bottomed down. He sees a poster, catches his eye. Friend, is heavy thinking ruining your life? (laughs) You probably recognize that line. It comes from the standard Thinker's Anonymous poster, (laughs) which is why I'm here today, a recovering thinker. I never miss a TA meeting. At each meeting, we watch a non-educational video. Last week, it was Porky's. (laughs) Then we share experiences about how we avoided thinking since the last meeting. (laughs) I still have my job, and things are a lot better at home. Life just seems, well, easier somehow now that I've stopped thinking so much. <laughs> now here's, we, what we've done a bit here is describe the challenges. And like any addiction, when we begin with meditation to wake up out of thoughts, we have to face what we're running from. In other words, we do use our, our thinking to separate us or buffer us from the intensity of life. So what happens is, and this is really the exploration, is that we open out of thoughts and we start feeling the energy that's underneath it. And it's what Kailani described, that underneath thoughts there's something generating them. And we can begin to cause, to perceive the cause of thinking which the Buddha described really as fundamental dissatisfaction. There's a a dissatisfaction in our being that gives rise to the movement of the mind. It's a dissatisfaction that sometimes we sense as wanting. There's this conditioning to want something, so the mind produces thoughts about what we want and how we can get it. Or else there's this conditioning of, as I described last week, something's wrong. And then the mind produces all sorts of ideas on how we can avoid what might go wrong more, how we can make things better. One person wrote, what we want is both endless excitement and perfect peace at once. (laughs) One of the Thai teachers, Ajahn Chah, described it this way. He said that 70% of our time meditating, we're realizing that we have to let go of something, but we're unable to do so. Now that's kind of, that's, this is the head of, you know, he was probably the most well-known Thai teacher of this last century. And he, just, and he had a lot of monks going through his monasteries, and this is how he described their experience. 70% of meditation realizing that we need to let go of something, but not being able to. We try, but what happens is thoughts keep rushing in again, because there's this habit of 
thinking something's wrong, we need something different. And this even deeper habit of trying to hold on to a self, because unless we're thinking, we cannot hold on to a sense of ourself. In the moments that we're not generating stories, that whole sense of who we are becomes very kind of vaguer and vaguer. So in the most basic way, you could say that thoughts are a way of holding on to existence. It's the most basic kind of attachment. And then as we look more closely, not only are we holding on to a self with our thoughts, often our thoughts reinforce a bad self or some way a wanting self, a self that's limited. And this is what I was describing last week, that it's probably our most pervasive suffering, that we keep on generating thoughts that tell us that something's wrong with us. I have to share with you, I did my first leg of a book tour in the last few days. I was out in um, Boulder, Colorado, and I went to Naropa to teach, and they had made a flyer to announce that I was going to be there, and it had a picture of me, and underneath the caption was, something is wrong with me. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I mean, would anybody go... (laughs) What a way to promote a new teacher, you know? (laughs) Something's wrong with me. So we get addicted to these stories, and they tell us, I'm here, I exist, and then, unfortunately, they also tell us something's not quite right with me. One of, uh, some of you know Annie Lamott, very well-known novelist, and she wrote a wonderful book about writing, which is also a book about being. It's like how to be creative, how to really live your moments. And she described the interference that happens. She called it radio station KFKD. Um, if you're not careful, station KFKD will play in your head 24 hours a day nonstop and stereo. Out of the right speaker in your inner ear will come an endless stream of self-aggrandizement, the recitation of one's specialness, of how much more open and gifted and brilliant and knowing and misunderstood and humble one is. Out of the left speaker will be the rap songs of self-loathing, the list of all things one doesn't do well, of all the mistakes one has made today and over an entire lifetime, the doubt, the assertion that everything that one touches turns to shit, the one, the one doesn't do, that one doesn't do relationships well, that one is in every way a fraud, incapable of selfless love, that one has no talent or insight, and on and on and on. You might as well have heavy metal music piped in through headphones while you're trying to get your work done. You have to get things quiet in your head so you can hear your characters and let them guide your story. The best way to get quiet, other than the combination of extensive therapy, Prozac, and a lobotomy, (laughs) is first to notice that the station is on. KFKD is on every single morning when I sit down at my desk. Then she goes on. You might also consider trying to breathe. This is not something I remember to do very often, and I do not normally like to hang around with people who talk about slow conscious breathing. I start to worry that a nice long discussion of aromatherapy is right around the corner. (laughs) But these slow conscious breathers are on to (laughs) something, because if you try to follow your breath for a while, it will ground you in relative silence. And she goes on, but I thought I'd give you a taste of it. (laughs) So what she's pointing to really is actually the traditional teachings that are the beginning of waking up out of thoughts. I'd like to divide them into two portions. And the one grouping of the teachings that help us to wake up from thinking is really wise reflection. And that means that we begin to not only notice that we're thinking, but to really sense, well, is this thinking right now helping to move me towards more freedom and happiness and love in my life? Or is it actually reinforcing a sense of separateness and smallness and trouble? I mean, imagine if really we could keep pausing through the day and saying, oh, thinking, thinking, and just notice, is this helpful? Is this moving us towards any sort of spiritual freedom and openness? 
Or is this just perpetuating a very small-mindedness? So that, that's one part. We can also actually practice with wholesome thoughts. I mean, really, what's, what is the experience when you feel like you're running in, through your mind a lot of judgment and blame versus the experience of metta, which is really a wholesome thought? And metta is an example if you ask the question, well, isn't some thinking spiritually useful? Yeah. Yeah, if we intentionally begin to reflect on what we love, just spend a few minutes reflecting on what you love, and the whole atmosphere of your body and your heart and your mind becomes very open. The environment is very, very primed to be present. So some thinking actually leads us sets us up for presence. Some doesn't. So that's one level. It's just beginning to notice. Is this helping? It's actually a really powerful way to pull the veil on thinking. But there's no real freedom when we're just substituting thoughts, even the most beautiful thoughts, because the deepest freedom is when we can stop identifying with our thoughts, when we can actually see there's these stories going on that we're not our thoughts and our thoughts aren't necessarily something that's that useful that we have to believe in. Tell you a story that's a useful one. There was a Buddhist teacher who was attending a retreat in Asia and she was feeling this growing resentment towards her Western friends. They had all gone to the retreat together, practiced at the same monastery. But she was appalled because she felt like they were really rude Westerners. They spoke really loudly, and they were making overly frequent expeditions to the village. And they were just, um, they didn't bow to the senior teachers. In other words, they were not really following the respectful etiquette at the monastery. And she felt they were disruptive. And so she got really upset about this and went to the senior teacher, the the abbot of the monastery, actually, and and told him what she was noticing and how upset she was. And he really didn't respond to her. He just kind of nodded and went on. So even more aggravated, she, she asserted really adamantly that her friends really needed to be set straight. I mean, somebody had to tell them what was what. So finally, in a kindly voice, he said to her, Buddha's mind is angry today. And that stopped her in her tracks. And the world shifted because the anger was there. It was loud and fierce, you know, the thoughts and the feelings. But it was not her anger. It was just Buddha's mind is angry. It was like he, this teacher, in just a few words, had had shown her that all these thoughts she was investing so much importance to, were just a weather system moving through. And as long as she was going to be identified with it, she would forget that it was really Buddha's mind, that she was Buddha, and this was just weather. I love that story because it really doesn't matter what weather system's going through. It doesn't matter if we're planning or remembering or fantasizing, and it doesn't matter if there's, you know, greed or lust or hatred. If we can realize, ah, Buddha's mind is angry or sad or afraid, then what we can do is we can begin to be with that weather system with a quality of genuine compassion and clarity. We can end up moving forward in our lives without being driven by a very small identity, a small sense of our being. So it's really the difference of knowing that being inside a thought and believing the story and being able to step out. Let's just practice a little, if you will, just to close your eyes. And I'd like to invite you to think about something that has happened today, yesterday, recently, where you felt some judgment about somebody. Not something that's going to catapult you into severe reaction, but just something where there was some judgment about somebody in your life. And 
And just think about what was happening, what was wrong, how come you're judging, how this might be a pattern, and what really bothers you about what this person's doing or saying or thinking or how they're acting. Just now become aware of the fact of thinking, the fact of rerunning this story. And just take a breath and pause. And just sense, okay, Buddha's mind judging. Noticing the difference between running the story and just being aware of judging thoughts. become judging thoughts that dissolve. Much like being in an airplane, it's the difference between flying through a cloud and forgetting the world. The whole world's that cloud. And then coming out of the cloud and remembering you're the sky and the clouds are part of it. They don't define the world. Srinur Sargadatta puts it this way. He says, The real world is beyond our thoughts and ideas. We see it through the net of our desires, divided into pleasure and pain, right and wrong, inner and outer. To see the universe as it is, you must step beyond this net. It is not hard to do so, for the net is full of holes. So opening your eyes. This is the practice, to begin to step out of the story. And the first step of it is you have this intention as you sit and move through the day to notice when the mind is caught up in thinking and just to note that. And it can help, and you notice this in the Vipassana training we do here. Often you're advised to just mentally say, thinking, thinking. And it can help if you'd like to explore this to be a little more refined with your note and say planning or remembering or fantasizing. Because if you really note something, you're no longer inside it. The very awareness that notices, that's what you're resting in. You're no longer inside the story. You could be sitting here meditating and and having the thought of, "Mm, this chair is uncomfortable. And then another thought of, God, I wonder how long this is going to last, you know. And then another thought of, you know, my mind's really, uh, this is not a good night. I'm tired anyway. And then I thought of, you know, I'm really not doing this right. So the practice would be, oh, thinking, having the thought that I'm not doing this right. In the moment that you can note that, having the thought that I'm not doing this right, you're no longer living in that story. That's the first step. Notice what's happening. The next step is to pause and relax. And it really helps, and I really encourage you to practice this as you're sitting, to very consciously pause after you've noticed a thought, and then just relax the mind open. Listen to sounds. If you're listening to sounds, you're no longer caught in the thoughts. It's a good trick. Relax your body. Relax your heart. Because what happens when we first notice we've been thinking is our hearts are tight. We're judging the fact that we're thinking, plus the thoughts are usually coming out of some tight place in our body. Relax. Then the next step, okay, we've noticed what's going on. Pause and relax. And then just discover, okay, so what's real right now? These sensations, this breath, maybe a strong mood in the body. Especially if you're having one of the top ten thoughts that cycles through, you know, the ones that really grab us, you might notice a lot of wanting or fear. Then that's where we pay attention. Come out of the mind and into the body. There's a few things that make this an easier practice, if we remember. One of them is 
to keep on grounding our attention in our body. It doesn't matter how many times you do it during a sit. Every time you remember, if you just pause and come back and feel the body again, you can do it right now. Just soften the shoulders. Feel the hands and let them be soft. Let the belly be soft. Relax with the breath and just know that you're here inhabiting this body. It doesn't matter if you start fresh 10,000 times. You begin to find the pathway to sacred presence by noticing thinking, by pausing, relaxing, and coming back to this body. So that's one thing, to keep letting the body be this anchor. To not judge thinking at all, not make it the enemy. I mean, the mind secretes thoughts like the body secretes enzymes. It's supposed to happen. And we have the capacity to not get trapped. The other thing to suggest is to get curious, because it's absolutely fascinating when we start stepping out of conceptual mind, experiencing this universe firsthand. What's it like to live in this world without a veil of ideas? Get curious. The fruit of this practice, of waking up again and again out of this dream of thoughts, are quite beautiful. One of the fruits is that we get to be intimate with life. We get to feel this aliveness firsthand, this body, the beauty around us, this mystery. This is uh, Bedrock by Gary Snyder. He writes, Snowmelt pond, warm granite, we may camp, no thought of finding more, and nap, and leave our minds to the wind. On the bedrock, gently tilting, sky and stone, teach me to be tender. The touch that nearly misses, brush of glances, tiny steps that finally covers worlds of hard terrain, cloud wisps and mists gathered into slate blue bolts of summer rain, tea together in the purple starry eve, new moon soon to set. Why does it take so long to learn to love? We laugh and grieve. So our first gift of this uh, training to wake up out of thoughts is this, this very sweet intimacy with the elements and the life and the mystery that's here. The other great gift is that when we stop using thoughts as our filter for the universe, we can see directly the nature of reality. We can see what's true. And every one of us wants to know, really, what is this? What is this life? What is this all about? So when we put aside our thoughts and deepen our attention, we really discover this world as this changing, magical display. Just pay attention. There's sounds and sensations just bubbling up, dissolving. There's this breath, the sensations of this life breath. We begin to see that we don't own our thoughts and we don't own this breath or these sounds. They're just happening. It's a magical display that comes and goes on its own. When our reality isn't confined by thoughts, we re-enter the simple and beautiful flow of direct experience. And we re-enter the awareness and the love that are our source. And that sacred presence. In any moment that we let go of thoughts and fully bring a wholehearted attention just to what's happening, we relax open into that spacious awareness. This is Kala Rinpoche. He says, you live an illusion in the appearance of things. 
When you see it, you will discover that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. It takes time because we are so in the habit of identifying with our thoughts. It takes many, many rounds of saying, I am not these thoughts. These, I don't have to believe these thoughts. And investigating what's actually happening in a more immediate way. Lipo. The birds have vanished into the sky, and now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Let's just close our eyes for a few moments. Let your intention be simply to relax, to notice what's happening. When thoughts come, to gently notice that. And to arrive again and again. In these sounds and sensations, in this living, breathing body of awareness, the sea of wakefulness. Rumi writes, Lo, I am with you always, means when you look for God, God is in the look of your eyes. Nearer to you than yourself are things that have happened to you. There's no need to go outside. Be melting snow. Wash yourself of yourself. A white flower grows in that quietness. Let your tongue become that flower. 